Welcome to the Fit for Fitness podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Davis, owner of Davis Fitness Method here in Seattle, Washington. This podcast is your resource for reliable fitness information. This information has been sourced from studies, experts, and real-world application from training with my clients and my own body. We're here to help you enhance your life by giving you practical takeaways that you can use today so that your energy, mood, and mindset begin to change right away. So let's not waste any more time. Let's jump into this episode. All right, everybody. In this episode, we are joined by Killian Hamilton. Killian is the Director of Programming and Innovation at Prescript. He's the founder and head coach of K2 Performance and a man that constantly challenges me to up my game. I hope you're prepared for this episode because Killian pulls no punches. With the rising tide of quote-unquote evidence-based coaching, Killian's calling bullshit. So if you're ready, here we go. All right, Killian, thanks for being on with us here today. Yeah, no Um, problem, man. Thanks for having me. So... Killian, you're a man of many thoughts. You um, have, I've, I find one of the most um, interesting perspectives just generally. Um, but then as your brain works, as it pertains to training, there's been kind of this recently and, and not, it hasn't infiltrated all areas of fitness culture, but it's been pretty pervasive um, recently. You launched a program to counter um, what is now known as kind of this like biomechanics influencer type workout. So um, first, um, I kind of wanted to jump into what was your thought process surrounding why you ended up launching that program? Um, And like, what are like, what would be some of the main differences we would spot there? Yeah, so uh, I think it's, I think it's a cool way to start. I'm glad that this is what you wanted to talk about, because I love talking about it. Uh, Yeah, the program, like it's called No Bullshit Strength Protocol. That's exactly that. Like, I think it's strength without any of the bullshit that is so pervasive nowadays in this industry. And I was actually talking to somebody earlier today, and I kind of call it like the renaissance in fitness or like the new, it's just like this new world order that we've come to in fitness where we have this rise of people that I think in absence of experience have found evidence to justify their approach. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with, honestly, there's nothing wrong with being evidence approached. But everything is evidence. Experience is evidence. Uh, Gut instinct could be used as evidence, anecdotal evidence, things you've read, things things you've done, things you've been taught. So I think it's this rise of people identifying as evidence-based. I feel what it is, is them putting something between them and having to admit they don't have the experience. So it's like, if I can be evidence-based, I don't have to be experience-based. I don't have to even broach the subject of what my experience is in the industry because I'm evidence-based. I'm using science. Therefore, no one continues the conversation to go, how long have you been doing this? How many clients have you trained? What have you competed in? And I think myself, I saw a really a big shift, especially being Canadian, and going through COVID and the lockdowns that we had, I saw a big shift in how social media was being utilized. And I saw people show up on social media, myself included, but I saw like two varying camps. You had people that probably had never used social media before for their business, needing to use it out of necessity, but who had a ton of in-person experience, had maybe competed at things in the past. And then there was a new camp of people who are able to find credibility on social media for their training processes because real world evidence wasn't something that people were even uh, thinking about at the time. Since everyone was stuck at home, it was really easy to set up your laptop in your bedroom uh, with you know, a skeleton and point at things because no one could actually go to a gym at that time to disprove the fact that none of that even mattered to begin with. So you know, I work for an education company that teaches a course in biomechanics. Uh, I think there's validity to what we do at Prescript because that biomechanics is applied. If you've ever met Shallow, if you've ever trained with Shallow, he is punishing you with this applied biomechanics on every machine at the gym constantly. And he works really hard. Like Shallow can apply biomechanics all day at the gym because he's going to load more plates on these machines than I do. And I'm going to listen. But I think I take offense to it when applying these biomechanics puts a barrier between 
people that are new to this industry, whether they're a coach or a client, and their confidence in actually attempting to do anything in this industry, whether it's build a business or just go to the gym and work out. Right. And and what what I, f- I find interesting about what you were saying about evidence is that it's only certain evidence that that matters, which was like, you, like you said, like, oh, what what you've done in the gym could be evidence. What, what results you've got could be evidence. And so some some things would be like you've you've trained under you've um, had the tutelage of, you know, training under, you know, the greats, like, you know, some of the greats and. And that could be evidence, right? And so, but that would be evidence that wouldn't be acceptable for somebody who is this, you know, quote unquote, science-based, evidence-based trainer, because it didn't come from this isolated environment where they studied it for six weeks. Yeah. And I I think like something like that, like empirical evidence, like done in a clinical setting or, or an academic setting is fine and it's great. And it provides us, I think more often than not, in this industry, empirical evidence either creates a confirmation bias for the way people already are thinking, or it gives us a starting point to think about something. But rarely, if ever, do I think it's the entire thought process uh, itself. Um, so yeah, like I think there's a time and place for everything. I think one of my big arguments against it comes from, and I, and I think one of my big gripes with it comes from, like you said, there's only so much evidence that matters. And then some of the arguments that people make towards, towards training, I find a hard, I find an inability to justify those things. And I think, you know, you and I have probably had these conversations constantly. If you sending me videos of like giant jack dudes doing barbell row. And it's like, well, this is an inefficient lat exercise. It's like, yeah, it is, but he's rowing 405. So something has to change or break, right? So I think when we start to look at, especially like biomechanical arguments, I think that the arguments can really, they really hold less water when it comes to efficacy and they hold greater arguments when it comes to longevity. You know, there's probably a better way to address an accurate line of pull or iliac fiber, what have you, so that this guy doesn't blow up from needing such an excess of load to create the same result. So I think you know, biomechanical inaccuracy causes one or two things to happen. You either need to use a lot of weight to cause the same stimulus, or you need to do a lot of reps. It's either a high intensity or high volume of something in absence of accuracy that's going to create the result. Well, yeah, the resounding answer would be, well, if we're more accurate, we don't have to use the same volume or the same load. It's probably safer for the athlete overall, but that's fine if that's the way the argument is posed. But if the argument is posed that, you know, certain movements don't cause change to muscle fiber i take a little bit of offense a, a to that because like like one like, of the ones was said was like pull-ups right oh great pull-ups don't build lats well my big problem with something like that is number one no exercise is done in isolation of other exercises no one's ever just done a single arm row and zero other back exercises and then measured the result they've had in hypertrophy the other thing is if we were to look at the last, I don't know, somebody told me that the first Olympia, don't quote me on this for people that listen to this, the first Olympia was like 1968. How many years of the Olympia had to happen between 1968 and whenever some kid decided that you have to train your last differently? Did guys win the Olympia with insanely huge physique? Dorian Yates, a big proponent of just training really hard in a dungeon won multiple times ronnie coleman a guy who prided himself on deadlifting a lot won the most times. if you've ever watched phil heath train or kai green train i wouldn't say their train is the most biomechanically accurate at all all of which who have won so i would say when we look at the actual objective data around if the goal is hypertrophy and if the be-all end-all goal of amassing hypertrophy is winning a bodybuilding show I just don't see how any of this stuff holds any weight. I, all my objective data points to doing heavy barbell row and pull-ups is how you win the Olympia. Uh, doing right. an iliac fiber row does not. Training, training harder. Because uh, a lot of the times it seems almost as if um, they, ten- they tend to pick movements that would, um, or like they, they lack certain intensity, so they only train to like a very specific 
um, like what technical failure or what they deem is technical failure. And like, that's the moment their arm moves out of the, the quote unquote line where it's effective and, and they don't necessarily drive a stimulus that's really causing it to grow. Um, but so what I, what I have seen and, and maybe you've seen something different is a lot of the times when people are they're they're coming up with these setups for these biomechanical, like um, efficient uh, lat exercises or chest presses where you're like pressing around or something like that is that um, I don't see a lot of them training with like dumbbells and free weights. Um, a lot of this conversation is around machines, setups on machines and cables. And um, so then what happens when you, you don't have access to those things? Yeah. And I think this is where a big part of like my frustration actually came with this is if you have a lot of online clients and there are people with two, three times as many clients as I have, I'm not the most successful person in the whole world. If you're an in-person trainer who owns their own facility, yourself, even David, you know how much equipment costs. Number one, you've also had a lot of experience in this industry amassing the thick equipment that your gym is outfitted with. But how many times do you come across someone, especially online, when you want to coach them, that doesn't have access to any of this equipment? How many people go, yeah, yeah, I'm working out of a crossfit box. I got barbells, dumbbells, benches, whatever you need, but I don't have any cables, I don't have any machines. That's three out of four clients I work with don't have access to any machines, maybe a cable stack. So if my expertise and my process and my approach as a coach lives and dies by having to match the perfect resistance profile with a strength curve and this machine that loads the, that to me seems like a really poor box to stand on as a coach. Like if that's when my back is up against the wall, if I can't write a program just using a barbell alone, my ability and my, my ability to program, my ability to understand nuance, my ability to manipulate sets and reps and intensity, load management over the course of a week, like, that's when I think you separate like, you know, the big dogs from the little dogs is like, can you program an entire workout with one, one modality and not murder someone? That's, that's skill. That's nuance, right? If you need a specific tool for every single little thing, I don't really consider you a coach. I, I, um, I actually now want to jump into the question that my client had, cause you segued so nicely into yeah, all you have is a barbell. Right. Yeah. And so, um, so his question, which we ended up distilling down was like, what's your take on compound movements, which is not what he meant. He kind of meant more machine. And when he said barbell movements, he meant the main barbell lifts. Yeah. And he's like, can you develop the same sort of overall muscle mass slash strength without the barbell movements? So if you don't have your bench deadlift and squat, can you still be able to build the same amount of muscle that you would without the barbell compounds. And I would, I would throw dumbbells in there too. So like dumbbells and barbells, because yeah. um, he was saying machines, like if you only had the leg press and you didn't have stuff like your front squat, your goblet squat or other variations. Yeah. I think honestly, you can amass strength in any number of ways, right? Because specific strength is just an expression right? Like it's an expression of efficient movement under load. And then to some degree, a neurological and physiological tolerance through tissue. But I think you can amass general strength in any given way. Like there are a ton of incredibly strong bodybuilders where the, the difference maker between what they do on a machine and what they do on a barbell is practice and the fact that they don't use it. So can you amass the same general strength using only machines and not compound movements? entirely and i think you could probably amass the same requisite amount of core strength as well if you found a way to train your core if on top of machines you could do a fucking plank and just load 45s on your back i'm sure your core would stand up with a little practice maybe that's the one place you'd go wrong but if you had machines at your disposal i think general strength wise you'd have a lot going for you um in terms of muscle mass with machines you could probably over time amass far greater muscle mass on machines uh, than with a barbell because again the thing that's missing is the specific skill you don't need that to amass hypertrophy all you need to do is put tension in some way across a muscle fiber so if you're looking at hypertrophy 
if you're looking for hypertrophy, literally anything will create it. That's something to be noted, right? It's tension on fiber. So yeah. It could be, it could be dragging a truck. Sure, you'll amass some general sense. Like if you drag, you know, if you push a wheelbarrow or you climb stairs, you're not going to have the the detailed hypertrophy of somebody, you know, hitting every head of a muscle group, you know, through different modalities. But amass a general large sense of hypertrophy, sure. And, and the difference maker in how that looks is probably nutrition, to be honest with you. Like if you just ate ridiculously clean and did anything that puts some general tension or stress on the body, you're going to be relatively pretty jacked, I'd say. So um, that being said, um, minus not having access to the, the, the barbell or, like, or to the cables and stuff like that, is there, is there um, a distinct advantage to training with barbells and free weights as opposed to training with machines and cables? I think, I think both for a beginner, I don't know. Beginner, you could argue skill is going to be a big limiting factor with the barbell and free, free weight movements. Um, but even with, I think beginner or advanced, I think what you get from compound movements is efficiency. Number one, you get efficiency against the load. Like I am able to use far more uh, muscle groups to move a greater load, as well as there's so many more muscular co-contractions contributing to like secondary and tertiary benefits to hypertrophy or strength. Uh, but I think with compound movements, again, it's just an efficiency. And I think if people start to see compound movements less as specific towards muscle groups and, oh, if you do this, it's not as much this as it is that. And they look at things more from a general sense. You know, for most people, you know, they're, even their goals when it comes to body recomposition or, or strength are general in nature and we over-specify them. You know, if you do enough bench press, your pecs will grow. I, you know, I don't know how to explain this better to the internet, but bench press does make your pec grow and it can be loaded a lot. Squats are going to make your legs big. Deadlift, you know, you know, even in a, a sympathetic way, is going to cause your lats and your traps to grow as well. There's tension being put across these at an extreme degree. So all of these movements, uh, all these movements live and die by the skill you have in executing them and the continuity between repetition you do. And all of these movements, because they exist only in the sagittal plane, over time will lead to probably a great deal of dysfunction when it comes to how you feel and how you move. But that's not always the conversation, right? It, well, people could, you, are choosing, could you jump yeah. into that just a tiny bit more? Um, like when you, when you mean, when, what do you mean when you say it could, it could lead to some sort of uh, dysfunction in terms of the way that we're moving? Yeah, so, so I don't even think this has to do like from a muscle, muscle function point of view, like we have muscles that work in the sagittal plane, right? They go basically origin to insertion, forwards, backwards, up and down. And then we have these muscles that work in a co-contracting factor, basically allow us to move forward and backwards or up and down really efficiently. And these muscles oftentimes will have a secondary function. A bicep has a secondary function. Glute meat has a secondary function. Um, adductor I think is super popular now in terms of its function but where I think dysfunction lies in the barbell movements is to get really good at barbell movements you have to develop compensatory strategies to move load everyone is going to find you know uh, a general form to barbell lift so everyone's going to bench very similar at the start and then we're all going to find our own biases or compensatory strategies to move more load Everyone is going to squat slightly different, a stance with slightly different, a motor unit recruitment pattern that's slightly different in order to benefit them to move the most load. That's just what we do as humans. We're constantly finding ourselves uh, in situations where we're creating compensatory strategies. Breathing is one. The way your body operates to breathe in a seated forward flex position is different than how your body operates you know, in a more extended uh, you know, or posteriorly compressed position. So all those things just become compensatory strategies. Compensatory strategies are only negative if they have a negative consequence. If your compensatory strategy benefits what you're trying to do, go for it. You know, if you squat a weird way and it allows you to squat the most weight, po most weight possible, no one is stopping you. If that's the goal is to move the most weight possible. Mm -hmm. If over time it leads to, you know, injury or you getting weaker, maybe you have to change the strategy, the movement strategy you're using. But we're all going to develop these things. So that's where dysfunction arises. Dysfunction arises in 
the sagittal and bilateral nature of it. So a barbell oftentimes is trained, you know, like you said, through the big three lifts. If we're looking at those squat bench and deadlift, they're bilateral in nature. Uh, everybody's going to have anatomical considerations that are different. You're probably going to have left or right biases already in the way that we move in where our strength and dexterity lie. These things are just going to be further exacerbated by training bilaterally both legs at the same time. Finding movements that train unilaterally, number one, we're able to differentiate the efficiency through strength or the efficiency through function of either side. We're able to compensate better in our programming for that. Uh, but from a strength point of view, they're always going to get you strong. Uh, if programmed properly and moderately, you're probably going to run into low amounts of dysfunction for a greater period of time. People that do barbell lifts forever and have no problems. People who do barbell lifts for a little bit and develop a ton of problems. So, Got you. So would you, would you say that, um, would you be more likely to develop that sort of dysfunction working with the barbell movements versus if you were using a machine or would you say that one might might lead to less or no i don't think so i think you know some people might make an argument that training unilaterally because of its ability to bias like a transverse versus a sagittal plane so i'm saying this rotational dynamic unilateral movement like i can create greater or lesser rotation greater or lesser flexion even uh so maybe you could make the argument that you may see less dysfunction over time training in that scenario. Uh, just because again, you can create compensation along the way where you can't really do that with a barbell. You can see more of what's going wrong. So yeah, there could be an argument that maybe having a program that overemphasizes a unilateral approach versus a bilateral approach could you know, delay dysfunction or injury long-term. My argument with that is even though you can get really strong unilaterally, you can't get stronger unilaterally than you are bilaterally, right? You just have less at play. So I think long-term, like you have to, you're going to have to train bilaterally and long-term, the weight's going to get inevitably heavy. So, so the biggest difference um, in um, kind of like, well, the most, the most glaring um, difference between like, what we're kind of describing as this evidence-based or, or scientific-based um, or um, biomechanics influencer. Um, yeah. And what you're saying is, I, I feel a lot of the times it's the implements of certain tools, but um, is maybe the people that tend to follow those people um, tend to also lack the intensity during training. Would you say that's more or less the case with barbell training? I think the problem with barbell training is, I guess, kind of what you're saying. People that train with barbells usually have all of the intensity and none of the brain power, you know? And I think if there was a marriage between these two things, it would be great. Um, and I think, I think it's, yeah, it, hopefully that's what we're doing, right? We're marrying the two. And I think that's where conversations with myself and Shallow are beneficial because, like, I can understand what he's saying from a biomechanical standpoint i can agree with it but it's never going to overtake my own training philosophy of training really hard or facilitating a way in which you train really hard and really that's where biomechanics begins and ends with prescript is it's all in a facilitation for a high intensity training environment right improving muscle function is to improve your high intensity training output you know looking at things from a unilateral sense they're talking to baxter about breathing and how the ribcage works it's all with the intent of creating a high intensity training environment. I don't see that from some other people that take this biomechanical argument. It seems like the beginning and end of it is just biomechanics. Right. Uh, and I see this, I see this based on the accounts that I follow. None of these people are working out. And uh, I don't really get it. You know, I, I just don't get why none of the content is them training really hard. A lot of it is them talking really hard. Right. So um, just to kind of get into intensity a bit, um, yeah. I don't think a lot of people really know what it means um, because let's say you, you take a, a set of 15 to what you feel like is near failure. Um, that might be hard, but relatively, it's not all that intense. And so yeah. if we could really break down, like, maybe A, like, like what it is, and then 
be um, what it actually takes to train intensely, because I don't think a lot of people really understand that there's kind of a spot where you kind of have to make a mental shift. And it's kind of like, oh, shit, like, I actually need to, I, I'm a capable of more B, like, I have to level, my, like, I have to, like, batten down the hatches, if you will, and like, really yeah. go for this. Yeah, so I think there is, you know, to some large degree, like a subject, subjective quality to people that can train really hard. And like, I myself know that shallow can train harder than I train. Like, I can recognize that. Like, I watch this guy do a set to failure. And I go consciously when I'm doing the set and I go, I'm stopping. Like, I'm going, yeah, and then I'm done. I don't have that thing, right? So I think when it comes to being able, like you said, to like flip some switch or like, you know, jump up in the air and your hair to go blonde for three episodes of the TV show. <laughs> it's like for you to get to that point in your like weave mentality, there's probably some type of psychological switch, right? So there's a buy-in to the movement. Either you really want to get really big and you recognize that like the works that I remember training, me and Shallow train with this bodybuilder and every set, it'd be like set to 15 and you get to 12 and this guy would just go, the work starts now. And it's like, I did 12 reps, man. The work starts now, gimmicky thing. Stop saying that on every movement. But yeah, I think there's a large part of it is in that person to recognize training at that intensity. But I think also for, for coaches to understand that it, that is a very subjective intensity. And when we're dealing with intensity as a whole, we're not dealing with a number. We're dealing with the subjective nature of perceived intensity. We have absolute intensity we have relative intensity we have relative intensity to failure we have relative intensity to perceived exertion so we have like rpe right um and i think rir and rpe are very similar we don't need to start to find differences between the two but i think the best thing to do for yourself or for people that you train is find ways early on in their training career uh because my friend abigail doesn't like to say training journey but it's like in their training career to facilitate working close to failure. And usually that's pretty well done on machines, right? People can like do a set of leg extension, get tired, wait a second. It's like, okay, now do three more. They do three more. They wait 10 seconds. You're like, now do three more. Something that doesn't have the ability to fail so technically is a really good tool early on in training to teach intensity because you can always use that as a comparison later on. You don't know what RPE 10 is, so you've done RPE 10. Well, you need to get people into an environment where they can create that. So I think finding ways, like extension is an example I use, but finding ways with the equipment that you have available to you, even if it's push-ups, I don't care. Like the uh, modality doesn't matter here. It's the, the rate of perceived exertion, right? Again, it's perception. So one thing that I do with a lot of trainees or I did do in person with trainees before they had the technical ability to train to failure was get them to do really hard bouts of cardio. Because again, RPE, rate of perceived exertion, is something that arrives from a cardiovascular history anyways. It's very easy to judge your proximity to having a cardiac arrest, right? Like people can get to that point very easily doing cardio and they'll know what it feels like to lose the ability to talk, to feel winded, to taste pennies, to want to stop. And then later on in training, we can start to equate our proximity to that sensation that they had. So I think it's something that is learned and is a skill. The benefit to this is when you're new to the gym, any stimulus is so novel enough, you usually get a tremendous benefit from it anyways. Do so you actually have that time in your first six, nine, 12 months at the gym to learn how to train at that intensity. I think that's something that needs to be noted. You need to learn how to train at that. Right. And so, so I have, so I, like a lot, a lot of clients when, when they're, they're starting they're they are kind of, they're learning how to train a little bit harder. Uh, there comes a point where, so like, I think one of the ones where people learn the most for me in, uh, in our gym is on the hack squat or on the leg press. And so they're going from their sets of 12 to 15. And I'm like, okay, like we're going to, move them down to like eights and tens. Um, and then like the weights are heavier. And then the, that, that first push to like, oh, oh, oh. And I was like, you, you, are, you are physically, your muscles are physically capable of doing this. Yeah. Like if we ran the numbers, now it's just you actually like really committing to the amount of tensity. Like it's a neural drive, I'm assuming. 
like yeah. to commitment to recruiting more fibers than you are currently. And that like for a lot of people is like, like it's the first time you see like them kind of like a, maybe like a little vein pop out or something like that. It's not like crazy, but like you could just see them like really like starting to brace and like actually trying to create some sort of intensity versus like kind of like <sighs> the whole way through, yeah. you know, like just like they're actually really like trying to get through that set. Um, would you say that there is something like, would you say that that's something that you've um, ever had to, to coach people on is like, just, just get them more? Or was it just like, Hey, here's the weight and, and go do it. No, I think there's like a good quantity of people I've worked with where I think the thing holding them back from improving is that ability to try a bit harder or have the confidence to do it. So there's tons of different, again, interventions you can use. You can use hard bouts of cardiovascular activity, I think are really great for any skill level. Isometrics, right? Like pulling a barbell into the rack. You can pull as hard as you want. It's not going to move. You can really teach how hard feels. Squatting into pins, pressing into pins. Any kind of hard isometric is also going to teach kind of the effort to result ratio that you need as well. So I think that's a great intervention. Um, things like every minute on the minute at a higher intensity teach people how to just do the thing and think about it less. That's an intervention I use with a lot of people for deadlift is like people that you start to see get mentally hung up over 85%. It's like start giving them, you know, three minutes, every minute on the minute, five minutes, 10 minutes, every minute on the minute, and just force them to have to pull this barbell and think about it less. Uh, we'll kind of break through that mental threshold as well. Uh, cluster sets will teach that intensity. Uh, that's something. Uh, I think there are a lot of different interventions you can use, but I think finding the intervention that creates an understanding of intensity for the skill level of yourself or your client is very important. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. And so um, so I, I think often like what maybe like gets overlooked on um, on the internet when it's, it's coming to these exercises is that everybody thinks that they're going to be able to um, like execute some of these exercises very well. Even, like they could be the perfect setup, but people don't understand like, oh, like I actually have to be able to express function through my shoulder. Like I have to be able to externally rotate and flex my shoulder yeah. in order to actually properly train my lats. So I might not best benefit from this lat developing exercise until I actually do something to improve my shoulder. Um, yeah. So how, how would you, um, how would you go about tell, like telling somebody like how movements that might not necessarily seem efficient for building the lats might actually be better at helping them develop lats because it helps them to build the function. Yeah, so I think with that, it, it's uh, having a conversation with your client where they understand that like the exercise they're doing isn't different. It's not different and it's very much not the same, right? It's like a uh, high cable bicep curl is not a lat exercise, but the high, high bicep curl, like you said, uh, high cable bicep curl, like you said, uh, allows for uh, a position uh, necessary to train the lat. So I think it's just in the conversation you have with a client. So you, again, you having a biomechanical understanding of why it works is necessary. Your client having that same understanding is not. Gotcha. So when it comes to, um, when it comes to what it's, what's important for the client to understand, um, intensity is one, one thing, um, like how to actually end up working hard. Yeah. Um, what other things do you think are important just from a client standpoint as it pertains to training in, in the gym, what do you think it's important for them to actually understand? Like if you had like a, I don't know, five, five box checklist, I'm not going to limit how many boxes you get. Yeah. You can decide, but. Uh, honestly, uh, rest, I think is the big thing. Like, I think you can check a lot. I think you can check far fewer boxes if people just understand the necessity for rest. Like if we can get away from saying things like active recovery uh, or somebody asked me about a low stim day, it's like if we can get away from weird terminology like this and I'm not sure where it started or why it still exists, but 
that's something I think we need to do. Uh, because like rest is important. Rest is basically what sets the stage for your performance in the next session, you know? So there's probably far when you, less. And work. when you say rest. I mean, going mean, to sleep. Okay. So like when I say rest, I mean literally being asleep. And anything that constitutes rest or recovery has to be things that look like sleep. So it's like. Laying down with sitting, your, kicking back with your feet up. You got it. The closer you get to actually being asleep, the more like rest that that's going to be. It doesn't have to be in an ice bath? Uh, Probably not. (laughs) Uh, It could be. Like there are somatosensory benefits to all of these things and it's fine and they do exist and I'm not arguing the validity of those things. Mm -hmm. But I think people chase those things while they ignore like going to bed. Right. And it's like you could save money and be less uncomfortable by going to sleep. Uh, especially because some of these things that people do only further encourage like uh, arousal or, or, overstimula- or overstimulation. An ice bath is very overstimulating. You know, a sauna can be very overstimulating. I don't think you necessarily need to do these things. So I think people focusing more on sleep and educating your clients that rest is sleeping is very important. Uh, I think second to that, uh, things that people need to focus on, learning how to train with intensity, sleeping. Um, oh, that the step thing, like getting your steps in. Steps are just like a, a surrogate for work. So it's like, it's something that I can look at objectively and go, did more or less work, right? So it's like, there's probably an amount of daily work that you need to do achieving arbitrarily 10,000 steps doesn't equate to a result. So people I see at 9 p.m., again, oh, I have to get 2,000 more steps. I'm going to walk around my block for 45 minutes. It's nine o'clock at night, go to bed. Hmm. That's another gripe that I have. So like, you think that they would personally do better to get more, more sleep than to try to um, reach this um, arbitrary number of steps a hundred percent i have no doubt that going to bed would do them better what if their uh, because, goal, what like what if the reason for their steps is like i don't know like weight loss because that's like the commonly touted thing is like oh get more steps count your calories you know yeah um i think again because steps just equate to overall energy expenditure right like you're getting steps in because you're trying to equate that to I've expended so much energy in a day. Again, you can make changes to that day if you're not going to get these steps in. Sleeping is probably going to be overall better for you from a recovery standpoint. Uh, and then better managing your day, like maybe not getting the steps in, but maybe taking that time to go, why today was I unable to take 10,000 steps? Right. Like what about your day limited you from doing that, right? So like that's something I would look at. Got you. So being less, so we've got sleep, we've got training intensely, and um, we've got this kind of like uh, quantifying work. Yeah. Okay. Would you say that those are the three that um, you'd be most interested in your clients knowing and understanding? Yeah, for sure. Okay. Um, and so like, as it pertains to like the, the clients that, um, they they like the metrics and they like the tracking and they like all these things. Um, there's there's probably some things that they're kind of missing that that they wouldn't necessarily understand about rest, like things like uh, y- how you might better adhere to training or how you might better adapt to training, give, mm-hmm. given the more rest part, right? The the sleeping part and how important that is. What would you what would you say is probably like the most overlooked thing about sleep, or do you think it's like people underestimate the value of sleep because they, it's not really until they experience it that they're kind of like, oh, like this actually like this thing happened. Yeah, so I think it's like you can get into the deep science of sleep if you want to, but just understanding like just basic principles of like number one, you have to rest. Like you're an organism that has a limited amount of energy per day. At some point, you're going to have to rest. Uh, number two, it's like hormone production and release. There's so many small micro processes that happen and can only happen when you're in a state of rest. Because when you're asleep, you're at your least stress 
in the day. So all these compensatory strategies that we have chemically and hormonally don't need to occur when you're asleep because you're asleep and nothing's trying to kill you and you're not trying to kill anything. So it's getting into a position where you allow the body to take the energy that it has and adjust that energy for that thing, right? So I think that's really what we're looking at and that's what we need to remind people of. I did like that you almost boiled it down. Like it almost felt like you're going to have a hard time coming up with a third point, but I did like how it almost just boiled down to train hard and sleep. Yeah. And it wasn't like, we want you to know more about how to target these specific muscles. And like the coach can, you know, definitely get, get somebody in line with that. Would you say somebody who doesn't have a coach, it would still be just those three things? Uh, Yes, I would still think it's those three things. And lastly, I I would think it's the idea that no matter what you track, tracking, tracking doesn't, tracking isn't what creates results. So people want to track how much weight they lifted. They want to track the size of their arms. They want to track their body fat. They want to track what they eat. They want to track how they sleep. None of those things progress you or are signs of progression. If you track absolutely everything, you can make a educated guess as to whether you are progressing or not. But none of those things in isolation, especially within the time frame that people utilize and identify, actually create the progression they're looking for. Mm. What do you mean by that? So like people who track hypertrophy via how much weight they load on a machine week to week. Right. That has nothing to do with hypertrophy, you know? So they're, so they're like, they could be lifting more weight, but their legs might not necessarily get bigger. Exactly. And Even like if they they're could, eating more calories and they're doing the right things. Sure. And it's like, guess what? You, your lifting of more weight could correlate to you getting bigger legs. But lifting more weight doesn't mean your legs will get bigger, if that right. makes sense. Right. And, and I mean, like part of it is like what, like part of you know, a, a strong amount of strength is neuromuscular, right? It's not just, it's not just the muscles. Yeah. So did you actually require more muscle to lift this amount of weight? And I think people also just don't, uh, people also don't give themselves the time needed to see these things pass or fail, right? Like if you Googled right now, how much muscle can a man or woman put on in a year? The range is insane that the internet will give you, right? Like the range is from five pounds to 15 pounds. Uh, We're not taking into account nutrition really or consistency. Uh, And on top of that, you'll scroll for four or five pages and not find any empirical evidence around these findings so people that want to track their body weight and want to track how much weight they lift and use that as a sign of whether or not they're progressing in terms of hypertrophy it's like what's your window of time if you could as a grown person who has trained in the gym before put on five pounds of muscle in an entire year on a 185 pound frame what really does that five pounds look like you know it's insignificant in nature so a lot of these things i think we track to get rid of some anxiety around the idea that we're wasting our time (laughs) but i don't think uh these things actually more or less mean anything right i think this was like like this was kind of the thing when i was when i was first started coaching with you that when i was talking to you about i had all those questions it's like how much can i expect to put on you know like what like like what how will i know that that that's what's happening and you're kind of like like either way you have to do the thing so do the thing yeah and that's what i mean like people should focus more of their efforts on training and less of their efforts on tracking what it is they do right because i mean if you hope to put on a a certain amount of size and training the thing is is like i think that's what you were saying before is like people want to know they're not wasting their time and so they're, tr- they're tracking these mac- metrics, hoping they're not wasting their time. Um, is there a way for them to, to have any sort of certainty in terms of, well, like, how do I know I'm not getting better? Like, how do I know I'm not, like, 
just staying the same because you're saying I can I can get stronger and I might not be putting on muscle. How do I know? Like, is there a time frame that I should check? Yeah, uh, two years from now. Okay, so I think the thing is like I think the thing is is what what is the rush? Are you intending on not working out anymore? Mm-hmm. And like, is your goal just five? I think pounds wouldn't it wouldn't more? it be more wouldn't it be more that they're probably worried about wasting those two years than it is that they're not planning on working out anymore? But what is like a waste though? That's my confusing part. I don't know where. I don't know what people's expectations are for themselves, really. And I think that's where it's like digging into more like, what is this expectation? Like, what would wasting your time be? You think you're going to show up to the gym every day and lift weights and eat properly. And you do all the things you're supposed to do. And a year from now, nothing good is going to happen. Is that people's expectation? Like, that's what's confusing to me. Right. If you do, if you do everything you're supposed to do for 12 months, you're assuming the results could possibly be bad. What would point you in that direction, right? I think it's the the biomechanics conversation and and those sorts of things now, where it's like, is it optimal? Right? Yeah, sure it is. Just do it. How many how many things in life are we doing, quote unquote, suboptimally? Like, if we're if we're gonna go and try to put in perfect lines of pull, but we're not getting adequate rest outside of training. And if we're not training hard enough during our training, it doesn't really matter how optimal the movement technique was. Yeah. Like given yeah. the option, given the option between getting optimal, like um, line of pull for an exercise or being able to train at a higher intensity, which would you, which would you say? Trying to train at a higher intensity because right. Again, hypertrophy is created through tension on a muscle, right? So training at a higher intensity. You might not grow your lat with a certain, as much. But but nothing will either, right? Like still nothing that these people are talking about (laughs) will change what it is that needs to happen. So Because they would still have to train at a certain intensity. Yeah. So yeah. So it's like I would rather get to that intensity quicker, uh, than slower. Got you. Now, um, is there a point where so like somebody might think like there's there's intensity and then there's like that's clearly momentum, right? Like I'm like that. I guess that was kind of my thing. Um, like kind of earlier on was like I could probably do a better job putting tension on this muscle if I do blank right like whether it's applying a certain tempo or um technique um but like if it's like there's times where maybe a little bit of what we would call body english actually helps to drive a little bit more intensity sure would you say that like would you say that that that, there's a point where that becomes unsafe or does it always have utility I think it has some utility, right? Like I think, yeah, if you start applying a lot of momentum to something, you're obviously taking away from the tension put on those muscles. So it's like when you apply global momentum to a movement, you're taking away in tension from the muscle. Well, that's counterintuitive to hypertrophy. If you're finding a super accurate line of pull, but in order to do that, you can't use any load at all, you're taking tension away from the muscle. So there is going to be a point in the middle. Now, I don't think it's about I think it's about what people, again, it's about how people decide on what is momentum or what is whatever. And again, I just don't care. Like I just simply at this point do not care because it's people moving the goalpost away from the objective, which is getting bigger or getting stronger. Are you bigger? Can you lift more weight? That's the question, you know? And it's like, ah, but on the last two reps of the set, I did like this thing who gives a shit? Like, I really don't care. And like, I don't even care in my own training. Right. I want to do 12 reps in the last two reps. I like arch my back. I'm like, I don't give a flying fuck if I arch my back, do to be honest that, with you. Do you put that in the log book as a half rep? No, I don't even have a log book because I'm not an idiot. That's the other thing. If you can't remember what weight you used on a machine four days later, you have more things. Get some CoQ10 or something. 
get some kind of cognitive brain cell. You can't get on the bench press and go, oh, last week I did 275. So write down in this logbook. Again, these are all moving the goalposts away from the results to tracking some benign behavior in order to congratulate yourself. You know, like if people really cared about getting big, they wouldn't care about biomechanics because also drugs. So, you know, like there's a lot of ways to end a lot of these arguments really quickly in ways that people can't argue with, right? It's like, well, they just take drugs and do whatever. you. And if you don't want to take drugs, I guess be more accurate. I don't know, right? I'm not also, yeah. I'm not condoning or motivating or whatever, promoting the use of performance enhancing drugs. I'm just saying these arguments these arguments get really goofy and nitpicky because people don't talk about the elephant in the room. So I think that's a big problem here as well. Right. Okay. I mean, yeah. <laughs> um, what, like, it, like, if we had, like, a closing statement, if we had to close out this yeah. whole thing, is there anything that you'd like to leave people with? Yeah. Um, you always have an opportunity to work harder than you did the session before. And that's all that matters. I love it. Killian, thank you so much for being on. No worries, man. Where's the best places for, you know, people to, to learn more things about you? Are you yeah. open to people learning more things about you? Yeah. Uh, Instagram, Killian.Hamilton or pre-script. Uh, pre, what is pre? Wait, wait, wait. Killian Don Hamilton at Instagram and Prescript is prescript.com. So check out either of those two sources for more about me. Perfect. And I will add those into the show notes for those of you that are listen, listening and want to hear more from Killian because who wouldn't want to listen to the world's most interesting man? Thank All you. Right. All right. Thanks again. No problem, man.